Section forty one of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, you sent me a case to consider in which I have no facts but what are against us, nor any principles on which to reason. It is vain to try to write thus without materials. The fact seems to be against you, at least I cannot know or say anything to the contrary. I am glad that you liked the book so well. I hear no more of Macpherson. I shall long to know what Lord Hales says of it. Lend it him privately. I shall send the parcel as soon as I can. Make my compliments to Mrs. Boswell. I am, sir, etc. Samuel Johnson, January the 28th, 1775. Mr. Boswell to Dr. Johnson, Edinburgh, February the 2nd, 1775. As to Macpherson, I am anxious to have from yourself a full and pointed account of what has passed between you and him. It is confidently told here that, before your book came out, he sent to you to let you know that he understood you meant to deny the authenticity of Ossian's poems that the originals were in his possession, that you might have inspection of them, and might take the evidence of people skilled in the earth's language, and that he hoped, after this fair offer, you would not be so uncandid as to assert that he had refused reasonable proof, that you paid no regard to his message, but published your strong attack upon him, and then he wrote a letter to you in such terms as he thought suited to one who had not acted as a man of veracity. You may believe it gives me pain to hear your conduct represented as unfavourable, while I can only deny what is said on the ground that your character refutes it, without having any information to oppose. Let me, I beg it of you, be furnished with a sufficient answer to any calumny upon this occasion. Lord Hales writes to me, for we correspond more than we talk together. As to Fingal, I see a controversy arising, and purpose to keep out of its way. There is no doubt that I might mention some circumstances, but I do not choose to commit them to paper. What his opinion is, I do not know. Footnote. His Lordship, notwithstanding his resolution, did commit his sentiments to paper, and in one of his notes affixed to his collection of old Scottish poetry, he says that to doubt the authenticity of those poems is a refinement in scepticism indeed. J. Blakeway and a footnote. He says, I am singularly obliged to Dr. Johnson for his accurate and useful criticisms. Had he given some strictures on the general plan of the work, it would have added much to his favours. He is charmed with your verses on Inch Kenneth, says they are very elegant, but bids me tell you that he doubts whether be according to the rubric, but that is your concern, for you know he is a Presbyterian. Legitimas faciunt pectora pura preces. Footnote. Mr. Croker writes, Croker's Boswell, The original draft of these verses in Johnson's autograph is now before me. He had first written, 
sunt pro legitimis pectoro pura sacris. He then wrote, Legitimas faciunt pura labella preces, which more nearly approaches Mr. Boswell's version, and alludes happily, I think, to the prayers having been read by the young lady. The line as it stands in the works, sint pro legitimis pura la bella sacris, is substituted in Mr. Langton's hand. As I have reason to believe that Mr. Langton assisted in editing these Latin poemata, I conclude that these alterations were his own. End of footnote. To Dr. Lawrence, footnote, the learned and worthy Dr. Lawrence, whom Johnson respected and loved as his physician and friend, Boswell. Dr. Lawrence was descended, as Sir Egerton Bridges informs me, from Milton's friend, in square brackets, Lawrence of virtuous father, virtuous son, Milton's sonnets. One of his sons was Sir Sylvan Lawrence, one of the judges of the King's Bench. Kroger's Boswell, end of footnote. February the 7th, 1775, Sir. One of the Scotch physicians is now prosecuting a corporation that, in some public instrument, have styled him doctor of medicine instead of physician. Boswell desires, being advocate for the corporation, to know whether doctor of medicine is not a legitimate title and whether it may be considered as a disadvantageous distinction. I am to write to-night. Be pleased to tell me. I am so almost, etc. Samuel Johnson. To James Boswell, Esquire. My dear Boswell, I am surprised that, knowing as you do the disposition of your countrymen to tell lies in favour of each other, you can be at all affected by any reports that circulate among them. Footnote. My friend has, in this letter, relied upon my testimony with a confidence of which the ground has escaped my recollection. Boswell. Lord Shelburne said, Like the generality of Scotch, Lord Mansfield had no regard to truth whatever. Fitzmaurice the Shelburne, end of footnote. Macpherson never in his life offered me a sight of any original or of any evidence of any kind, but thought only of intimidating me by noise and threats. To my last answer, that I would not be deterred from detecting what I thought a cheat by the menaces of a ruffian, put an end to our correspondence. The state of the question is this. He and Dr. Blair, whom I consider as deceived, say that he copied the poem from old manuscripts. His copies, if he had them, and I believe him to have none, are nothing. Where are the manuscripts? They can be shown if they exist, but they were never shown. De non existentibus et non apparentibus, says our law, eadem est ratio. No man has a claim to credit upon his own word when better evidence, if he had it, may be easily produced. But so far as we can find, the earth's language was never written till very lately for the purposes of religion. A nation that cannot write, or a language that was never written, has no manuscripts. 
but whatever he has he never offered to show if old manuscripts should now be mentioned i should unless there were more evidence than can be easily had suppose them another proof of scotch conspiracy and national falsehood do not censure the expression you know it to be true dr memis's question is so narrow as to allow no speculation and I have no facts before me but those which his advocate has produced against you. I consulted this morning the President of the London College of Physicians, footnote, Dr. Lawrence. See Johnson's letter to Warren Hastings of December the 20th, 1774, end of footnote, who says that with us, Doctor of Physic, we do not say Doctor of Medicine, is the highest title that a practiser of physic can have that doctor implies not only physician but teacher of physic that every doctor is legally a physician but no man not a doctor can practise physic but by licence particularly granted the doctorate is a licence of itself it seems to us a very slender cause of prosecution I am now engaged, but in a little time I hope to do all you would have. My compliments to Madam and Veronica. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, February the 7th, 1777. What words were used by Mr. Macpherson in his letter to the venerable sage I have never heard, but they are generally said to have been of a nature very different from the language of literary contest. Dr. Johnson's answer appeared in the newspapers of the day, and has since been frequently republished, but not with perfect accuracy. I give it as dictated to me by himself, written down in his presence, and authenticated by a note in his own handwriting. This, I think, is a true copy. Footnote. I have deposited it in the British Museum, Boswell. Mr. P. Cunningham says, of all the manuscripts which Boswell says he had deposited in the British Museum, only the copy of the letter to Lord Chesterfield has been found, and that was not deposited by him, but after his death, pursuant to the intentions of the late James Boswell, Esquire, Crocus Boswell. The original letter to Macpherson was sold in Mr. Pocock's collection in 1875. It fetched fifty pounds almost five times as much as Johnson was paid for his London. It differs from the copy, if we can trust the auctioneer's catalogue, where the following passage is quoted. Mr. James Macpherson, I received your foolish and impudent note. Whatever insult is offered me, I will do my best to repel. And what I cannot do for myself, the law shall do for me. I will not desist from detecting what I think a cheat from any fear of the menaces of a ruffian. End of footnote. This, I think, is a true copy. Mr. James Macpherson, I received your foolish and impudent letter. Any violence offered me, I shall do my best to repel. And what I cannot do for myself, the law shall do for me. I hope I shall never be deterred from detecting what I think a cheat by the menaces of a ruffian. What, 
would you have me retract i thought your book an imposture i think it an imposture still for this opinion i have given my reasons to the public which i here dare you to refute your rage i defy your abilities since your homer footnote in the gentleman's magazine for seventeen seventy three is announced the iliad of homer translated by james macpherson esq two volumes quarto two pounds two shillings beckett hume writes finding the style of his ossian admired by some he attempts a translation of homer in the very same style he begins and finishes in six weeks a work that was for ever to eclipse the translation of pope whom he does not even deign to mention in his preface but this joke was still more unsuccessful than his history of britain j h burton's hume hume says of him that he had scarce ever known a man more perverse and unamiable Ibid, end footnote. your abilities since your homer are not so formidable and what i hear of your morals inclines me to pay regard not to what you shall say but to what you shall prove you may print this if you will samuel johnson footnote within a few feet of johnson lies by one of those singular coincidences in which the abbey abounds his deadly enemy james macpherson stanley's westminster abbey End of footnote. mr macpherson little knew the character of dr johnson if he supposed that he could be easily intimidated for no man was ever more remarkable for personal courage he had indeed an awful dread of death or rather of something after death footnote hamlet act three scene one end of footnote and what rational man who seriously thinks of quitting all that he has ever known and going into a new and unknown state of being can be without that dread but his fear was from reflection his courage natural his fear in that one instance was the result of philosophical and religious consideration he feared death but he feared nothing else not even what might occasion death footnote fear was indeed a sensation to which dr johnson was an utter stranger excepting when some sudden apprehensions seized him that he was going to die piozzi's anecdotes in this respect his character might be likened to that of fearing in pilgrim's progress part two as described by greatheart when he came to the hill of difficulty he made no stick at that nor did he much fear the lions for you must know that his troubles were not about such things as these his fear was about his acceptance of last End footnote. many instances of his resolution may be mentioned one day at mr beauclerc's house in the country when two large dogs were fighting he went up to them and beat them till they separated and at another time when told of the danger there was that a gun might burst if charged with many balls he put in six or seven and fired it off against a wall mr langton told me that when they were swimming together near oxford 
he cautioned dr johnson against a pool which was reckoned particularly dangerous upon which johnson directly swam into it he told me himself that one night he was attacked in the street by four men to whom he would not yield but kept them all at bay till the watch came up and carried both him and them to the roundhouse footnote see ante where garrick humorously foretold the roundhouse for johnson end of footnote in the playhouse at lichfield as mr garrick informed me johnson having for a moment quitted a chair which was placed for him between the side scenes a gentleman took possession of it and when johnson on his return civilly demanded his seat rudely refused to give it up upon which johnson laid hold of it and tossed him and the chair into the pit foot who so successfully revived the old comedy by exhibiting living characters had resolved to imitate johnson on the stage expecting great profits from his ridicule of so celebrated a man johnson being informed of his intention and being at dinner at mr thomas davies the bookseller from whom i had the story he asked mr davies what was the common price of an oak stick and being answered sixpence why then sir said he give me leave to send your servant to purchase me a shilling one i'll have a double quantity for i am told foot means to take me off as he calls it and i am determined the fellow shall not do it with impunity davies took care to acquaint foot of this which effectually checked the wantonness of the mimic mr macpherson's menaces made johnson provide himself with the same implement of defence it was right hawkins life page four nine one an oak plant of a tremendous size a plant i say and not a shoot or branch for it had a root which being trimmed to the size of a large orange became the head of it its height was upwards of six feet and from about an inch in diameter at the lower end increased to near three this he kept in his bedchamber so near the chair in which he constantly sat as to be within reach macpherson like johnson was a big man dr a carlyle says autobiography he was good-looking of a large size with very thick legs to hide which he generally wore boots though not then the fashion he appeared to me proud and reserved End of footnote. mr macpherson's menaces made johnson provide himself with the same implement of defence and had he been attacked i have no doubt that old as he was he would have made his corporal prowess be felt as much as his intellectual his journey to the western isles of scotland is a most valuable performance footnote boswell wrote to temple on april the fourth mr johnson has allowed me to write out a supplement to his journey letters of boswell on may the tenth he wrote i have not written out another line of my remarks on the hebrides i found it impossible to do it in london besides dr johnson does not seem very desirous that i should publish any supplement between ourselves he is not apt to encourage one to share reputation with himself Ibid. End of footnote. 
it abounds in extensive philosophical views of society and in ingenious sentiment and lively description a considerable part of it indeed consists of speculations which many years before he saw the wild regions which we visited together probably had employed his attention though the actual sight of those scenes undoubtedly quickened and augmented them mr orme the very able historian footnote. colonel newcombe when a lad was forever talking of india and the famous deeds of clive and lawrence his favourite book was a history of india the history of orme thackeray's newcombe's end of footnote. mr orme the very able historian agreed with me in this opinion which he thus strongly expressed there are in that book thoughts which by long revolution in the great mind of johnson have been formed and polished like pebbles rolled in the ocean that he was to some degree of excess a true-born englishman footnote richard the second act one scene three and a footnote so as to have entertained an undue prejudice against both the country and the people of scotland must be allowed footnote. a passage in the north britain shows how widespread this prejudice was the writer gives his real fair and substantial objections to the administration of this scot in square brackets lord bute the first is that he is a scot I am certain that reason could never believe that a Scot was fit to have the management of English affairs. A Scot hath no more right to preferment in England than a Hanoverian or a Hottentot. In Humphrey Clinker, a letter of July the 13th, we read, From Doncaster northwards, all the windows of all the inns are scrawled with doggerel rhymes in abuse of the Scotch nation. Horace Walpole, writing of the contest between the House of Commons and the city in 1771, says of the Scotch courtiers, The Scotch wanted to come to blows, and were at least not sorry to see the House of Commons so contemptible. Memoirs of the Reign of George III. What a nation is Scotland, he wrote at the end of the Gordon Riots in every reign engendering traitors to the state and false and pernicious to the kings that favour it the most letters lord shelburne a man of a liberal mind wrote i can scarce conceive a scotchman capable of liberality and capable of impartiality after calling them a sad set of innate cold-hearted impudent rogues he continues it is a melancholy thing that there is no finding any other people that will take pains or be amenable even to the best purposes fitzmaurice's shelburne hume wrote to his countryman gilbert elliot in seventeen sixty four i do not believe there is one englishman in fifty who if he heard i had broke sick my neck to-night would be sorry some because i am not a whig some because i am not a christian and all because i am a scotsman can you seriously talk of my continuing an englishman 
am i or are you an englishman elliot replies notwithstanding all you say we are both englishmen that is true british subjects entitled to every emolument and advantage that our happy constitution can bestow Burton's Hume. Hume, in his prejudice against England, went far beyond Johnson in his prejudice against Scotland. In 1769 he wrote, I am delighted to see the daily and hourly progress of madness and folly and wickedness in England. The consummation of these qualities are the true ingredients for making a fine narrative in history, especially if followed by some signal and ruinous convulsion as I hope will soon be the case with that pernicious people. Ibid. In 1770 he wrote, Our government has become a chimera, and is too perfect in point of liberty for so rude a beast as an Englishman, who is a man, a bad animal too, corrupted by above a century of licentiousness. Ibid. End of footnote. That he was to some degree of excess a true-born Englishman, so as to have entertained an undue prejudice against both the country and the people of Scotland, must be allowed. But it was a prejudice of the head, and not of the heart. He had no ill-will to the Scotch, for if he had been conscious of that, he would never have thrown himself into the bosom of their country and trusted to the protection of its remote inhabitants with a fearless confidence. His remark upon the nakedness of the country, from its being denuded of trees, footnote, The love of planting, wrote Sir Walter Scott, which has become almost a passion, is much to be ascribed to Johnson's sarcasms. Croker Correspondence Lord Geoffrey wrote from Watford in 1833, what a country this old England is! In a circle of twenty miles from this spot, leaving out London and its suburbs, there is more old timber than in all Scotland. Coburn's Geoffrey, and a footnote. His remark upon the nakedness of the country from its being denuded of trees was made after having travelled two hundred miles along the eastern coast, where certainly trees are not to be found near the road and he said it was a map of the road which he gave. His disbelief of the authenticity of the poems ascribed to Ossian, a highland bard, was confirmed in the course of his journey by a very strict examination of the evidence offered for it. And although their authenticity was made too much a national point by the Scotch, there were many respectable persons in that country who did not concur in this, so that his judgment upon the question ought not to be decried, even by those who differ from him. As to myself, I can only say upon a subject now become very uninteresting, that when the fragments of Highland poetry first came out, I was much pleased with their wild peculiarity, and was one of those who subscribed to enable their editor, Mr. Macpherson, then a young man, to make a search in the Highlands and Hebrides for a long poem in the Earth language, which was reported to be preserved somewhere in those regions. 
but when there came forth an epic poem in six books with all the common circumstances of former compositions of that nature and when upon an attentive examination of it there was found a perpetual recurrence of the same images which appeared in the fragments and when no ancient manuscript to authenticate the work was deposited in any public library though that was insisted on as a reasonable proof who could forbear to doubt Footnote. even david hume subscribed to the fund he wrote in seventeen sixty certain it is that these poems are in everybody's mouth in the highlands have been handed down from father to son and are of an age beyond all memory and tradition adam smith told me that the piper of the argyleshire militia repeated to him all those which mr macpherson had translated we have set about a subscription of a guinea or two guineas apiece in order to enable mr macpherson to undertake a mission into the highlands to recover this poem and other fragments of antiquity mason's gray hume changed his opinion on going to london writes dr a carlyle autobiography he went over to the other side and loudly affirmed the poems to be inventions of macpherson i happened to say one day when he was declaiming against macpherson that i had met with nobody of his opinion but william caddell of cochini and president dundas which he took ill and was some time of forgetting gibbon in the decline and fall quoted ossian but added something of a doubtful mist still hangs over these highland traditions nor can it be entirely dispelled by the most ingenious researches of modern criticism on this hume wrote to him on march the eighteenth seventeen seventy six i see you entertain a great doubt with regard to the authenticity of the poems of ossian where a supposition is so contrary to common sense any positive evidence of it ought never to be regarded men run with great avidity to give their evidence in favour of what flatters their passions and their national prejudices you are therefore over and above indulgent to us in speaking of the matter with hesitation gibbon's miscellaneous works so early as seventeen sixty three hume had asked dr blair for proof that these poems were not forged within these five years by james macpherson these proofs must not be arguments but testimonies j h burton's hume smollett it should seem believed in ossian to the end in humphrey clinker in the letter dated september the third he makes one of his characters write the poems of ossian are in every mouth a famous antiquarian of this country the laird of macfarlane at whose house we dined can repeat them all in the original gaelic End of footnote. End of section forty one